episode of Talking Movies with Sam and Raj. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rod Sani. And I'm Batman. <laughs> uh, the, as, as we teased just a couple of days ago on the previous episode, um, this week's featured segment is going to be, and actually as Sam just teased right now, um, this week's discussion is going to be, um, we're going to be digging into Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight trilogy as sort of our first installment in a series of episodes that will be sprawled throughout the next couple of months leading up to Christopher Nolan's next film, Tenet. Um, but, but let's go ahead and sort of start with like you know, overall thoughts on the franchise, but also some individual thoughts on each individual film. And let, let's get your overall thoughts first, Sam, on this franchise. And maybe even this is a good place to sort of discuss how this franchise has impacted you. Well, sure. I mean, I think we've already referenced the fact that you watched the actually the second movie, The Dark Knight, being like over 100 times now. So mm-hmm. I feel like throughout this discussion, you're going to be carrying it. But before you even get into The Dark Knight, I got to get into uh, who I thought Chris Nolan was even before I started watching the sh- uh, watching these movies. It was because, um, you know, I, in hindsight, I didn't realize how you know, lucky we were to have an auteur filmmaker like Christopher Nolan to helm a superhero movie. Like it wasn't even up until Dunkirk that I started paying attention to to onto uh, who who Chris Nolan was like you I remember you like uh you were sending me like tweets and like uh news reports and like casting announcements for Dunkirk when it was coming I was like okay cool I mean that's awesome like even when Interstellar came out I was like oh hey this is the guy that made the Batman movies that's how I talked about Chris Nolan before I even you know fully understood who he was as a as a director but like you know in hindsight now realizing the fact that he is who he is and him coming to the fold into the superhero genre we're kind of you know it's kind of insane to me that he even signed on to begin with because of his his reputation as a filmmaker and the genre even up until that point was kind of seen as for more children or you know something as a bit of a blockbuster something that doesn't even lean lean itself into you know serious filmmaking but the way chris Nolan works is that he kind of uh, buries the lead with his movies like he seemingly introduces like these uh, simple plots or you know action adventure entertainment cinema but within them they're wrapped for the purpose of kind of challenging its audience members in regard to how and like with with, the, with these you know big thematic elements like you know the objectivity of truth or uh, the human condition uh are, can we trust our thoughts you know and i can go on and on and on about about the his thematic elements within his film genre, or his filmography but within the dark knight trilogy i consider it to be one of the greatest trilogies ever like up there with um with the before trilogy with the lord of the rings uh with up there with i i guess you would say how to train your dragon i'm gonna die on that hill how to train your dragon is a great (laughs) fucking trilogy but um you know i these are movies that i visit consistently throughout you know if i'm bored and i want to rewatch a a movie or or something or just like reintroduce myself to a, a a genre or just like a trilogy that i I'm a big fan of. I'm always thinking maybe I should rewatch the Dark Knight trilogy because I do own them on Blu-ray and I can just watch them whenever I want to on my TV. And that's something I consistently do because, you know, these movies are insanely rewatchable. I'll get into which ones are more rewatchable than the others in a sec. But, you know, these are the, when I'm thinking about this trilogy, I think about Chris Nolan and how he's affected and how he's impacted the genre as a whole because of, you know, how well he crafted this with uh, with Jonathan Nolan, with Christian Bale, with his, you know, his flurry of repeat actors and David Goyer. His- David David Esquire, who was uh, he chose him because he wanted somebody to ha- who who was like knowledgeable within the comic book genre to help him craft these three movies. And even before 
the, he even signed on for the trilogy. He was only signed to sign on for the first one, but you know Warner Brothers saw the opportunity because of how well received the first one was with Batman Begins in 2005. I was only 10 years old at the time. Like I was like a movie that I don't <laughs> even like. I, I maybe up until my, maybe like my fifth or my fourth rewatch, I didn't really fully understand the plot of it because you know I was pretty much a kid when those movies came out, and you know I was like only 13 when The Dark Knight came out, and then I was a senior in high school and uh, I think. Wasn't I? We were in high schools when the Dark Knight Rises came out, right? 2012. So it was after our junior year going into our senior year. Okay, so yeah, yeah. just around that time range. But, um, you know, the most important aspect with trilogy being is that the consistency of it. And, you know, with trilogies, there's always a weak link. But within, you know, Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, I can't say that it has a weak link. I think that this trilogy is sort of the defining stage of Christopher Nolan's career. And that's not to say that he hasn't made or is not going to make better movies than these movies, because I think he certainly will and even has to this point. Um, but these sort of are what really put him on the radar for mm-hmm. or on the map, I think, as sort of the caliber of filmmaker that he could be. Um, and, you know, it is very interesting to track his sort of progression, because before this, he had only done his smaller stuff. Um, he had an Academy Award nomination for writing under his belt for Memento, but he'd also done Following and Insomnia. And then he got Batman Begins in 2005 or in 2003, he got signed on and then 2005, it came out. In between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, he did The Prestige. Um, and then in between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, he did Inception. Um, but, you know, when he did The Dark Knight, or sorry, Batman Begins, $150 million budget. He was coming on to take over the Batman franchise, something that had been basically dead since the um, the 97 version. So it had been sort of on the rocks for almost 10 years. And then he came in and sort of revitalized it, but did it in a very different way because he um he revolutionized it in a sort of realistic dark and gritty um setting and and this new form of gotham that we hadn't quite seen and um i think you know the progression especially with dark knight we're going to spend a lot of time on dark knight in this podcast (laughs) and i think that that's because that is sort of the defining entry in this trilogy um but i think that this whole trilogy played a part in sort of he is now the the sole director i think who can make a billion dollars on his name alone um you know dunkirk didn't necessarily make a billion dollars but considering the budget, the scale, the amount of money that Warner Brothers put into it, they made a lot, a lot, a lot of money back on that thing. And that was sold just on Christopher Nolan's name because there was no big name actors in that. It was not a franchise property. It was not even a story that any of us were familiar with. I'm sure Brits are familiar with it, but to us, it's pretty foreign concept. The whole Dunkirk, um, the whole Dunkirk idea is pretty foreign and it still did killer at the box office. Um, Tenet is like the most talked about movie in the past five years that I can even think of. Um, this, he's he's a revolutionary filmmaker and it's because of this trilogy i think mm-hmm. and um we'll, we'll get a little bit more into it at, at, after we sort of discuss it each individual film about the legacy and whatnot but let, let's start with batman begin so this is obviously his 2005 reboot like i said revolutionizing um not just this film but sort of a genre of films and sort of adapting it in a realistic dark and gritty way and um it's the origin story it's batman begins and it's the origin story and um i think from this trilogy this is actually the one that i've seen the least Mm -hmm. and and i guess i always forget like how much time it actually dedicates to those origins Mm -hmm. um and and what i love most about this film is that sort of setup and sort of his evolution into the batman um from the training stuff with ross al ghul liam neeson is great in this film um i think it's that stuff is all really great and then it's sort of coming home and readapting to society and then the sort of flashbacks to his childhood interstitch into this sort of um 
into this narrative and sort of pairing those scenes with his development and, and the current timeline that we're in, I, I really, really like that stuff. And I, I, I just really think that this this film did the origin story of like a superhero better than any other origin story that I can think of. And obviously it sort of set off a new wave of, you know, of superhero films in general and everything sort of started to borrow from this. Um, but I, I just, I really, really love the origin stuff. And I guess for me personally, it actually drops off a little bit in the final 45 minutes when it's not focusing on the origin stuff. And, and that's mm. actually something that, uh, not this rewatch, but the previous rewatch for me um, really sort of solidified because I, I love all three of these movies, no doubt. But this is actually my least favorite of the three just because I feel like those final 45 minutes are such a vast difference in terms of quality from the first, uh, what, hour and a half or so. Right. Um, well, it's interesting you say that because I was always curious as we never had an in-depth discussion, discussion about this trilogy, even outside of the podcast. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think one of my, you know, personal my ranking for this is being like the this one is my least favorite only because I think it's less rewatchable because of that origin story. You know, it's something that we are already accustomed to. We've already seen it throughout different interpretations um, years before this one even came out. And, you know, this is something that we've seen even throughout other superhero movies, even going forward forward now with the marvel cinematic universe and uh even with dceu we're seeing that there's an origin story is kind of what the precipice of what these movies are starting their uh franchises off of and because that this one does spend so much time on the origin or it's kind of not as interesting it's pretty much the first act of the trilogy like it's much more tepid because it has to dedicate most of its time to establishing who bruce wayne is establishing who batman is establishing the dynamics within the key players in this universe with uh, jim gordon bruce wayne alfred uh the police force and you know going on and especially with the dynamic between uh, Bruce and uh, or Batman and Gotham City and their relationship and how that kind of flushes out throughout these three movies I think that's why I think this is the, another movie that or I'm agreeing with you that the fact that this is the one I've seen the least amount of times I think maybe you know less than 10 times I would say definitely I don't know the exact amount because I never count but I, I would say it's easily in the single digits but um Something that's pretty funny, a pretty funny story with uh, this movie is there's a there's a there's a line within the first act that Liam Neeson tells uh, Christian Bale when they're training. He's like, "Don't rub your arms, rub your chest." And you know, I was a kid when I was watching this movie, and whenever I, I would be cold, I was like, "Oh wait, um, Raz Al Ghul said rub your chest because it makes you warmer." <laughs> and I was reading the trivia for this movie, and then this like it has no basis in science. That's just, that's just something that Chris Nolan made up just for the purpose of the movie. So this entire time, I was just been rubbing my chest before instead of rubbing my arm. <laughs> what Liam Neeson said, because the reason being is like he's such a you know a formidable or you know well decorated actor, and the way he delivers his lines as he sells it, he sells it so well that you just buy into it and you just like hey this makes sense he said it you know, i'm gonna start doing that because i'm cold but uh <laughs> i mean other things being i think one of the um another small trivia thing within this within this movie is that we see a baby joffrey in this in this uh yeah uh, He's like the little kid in the narrows that he kind of yeah. interacts with throughout like the final times, right? He comes, he shows up a couple times. Final half hour of the movie, and um, a couple criticisms for the movie is that uh, there's a lot of quick cuts. I didn't really appreciate during the fighting sequences, and uh, Scarecrow is usually just usually just used as a, a plot device, and he's in all three movies. And I was reading that you know the reason that. Chris Nolan likes Killian Murphy so much, or like even within this movie, he liked uh, his character so much. It was because of his eyes. He like he like he loved his 
quote unquote piercing blue eyes and would use any excuse to have Killian take off his glasses so that the camera could focus on his blue eyes. I think Chris Nolan might have a little bit of a crush on Killian Murphy, but who can blame him? He's a very <laughs> yeah, handsome <right>. guy. <laughs> He's a handsome guy. Um, another fun fact of trivia: Killian Murphy actually originally auditioned for Batman, mm-hmm. um, and he lost it to Christian Bale. So that's uh, I think something that a lot of people are not aware of. A um, couple things in in what you just said that I certainly want to unpack, and um, I think it's interesting actually the origin story is the stuff that you don't like about this, because that's, like I said, the strongest stuff to me, um, his sort of training. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's, like, my least favorite. I'm just saying that the reason that you can't rewatch it as much because it is the origin story. It just feels very repetitive, not for itself, but with that, within the genre itself. So. Sure, and and I think what what I, I guess what is also interesting of that, you talked about sort of how we've become so accustomed to seeing origin stories from the Marvel movies and whatnot, but, like, this, you know, before this, you obviously had your Tim Burton stuff, and then you had, like, X-Men and a couple of Sam Raimi, Raimi Spider-Man under your belt, so, like, we hadn't seen, we hadn't really had that sort of exhaustion of, of origin stories, and I wonder if, like, the success of Batman Begins is what really was the true catalyst of getting so many origin stories and it's funny how retroactively now we're tired of origin stories and well this movie mm-hmm. is so much better than the other origin stories we can kind of attribute it to what it inspired and not actually the final product itself right um, but i i really really agree 100 percent with what you said in terms of this being the first act of the three act structure um and i've heard people say that the three movies don't interweave together all that well i think they mm. actually weave together brilliantly okay and i think it's Thank because <laughs> i think it's because it's sort of anchored in in Bruce's arc, and I wonder if people. I, I don't understand why somebody would mis uh, miscomprehend that, but I think it's pretty clear that. Christopher Nolan's main focus in this entire trilogy is Bruce's arc. And that's what I really, really appreciate about this. And um, why I think the origin story works so well here is because we're getting um, Bruce, you know, we get the sort of flashback, obviously, like we just said, but we understand sort of where his fear extends from his relationship with his father and how his father helped him overcome his fears. And then with Mm -hmm. his father dying, it's sort of reigniting those fears. And how is he as an individual going to become um, a properly formed adult when he doesn't have that person that's sort of saving him from himself, but also those, his surroundings around uh, his surroundings that are um, knocking him back down. And I think that that's really interesting um, insight into Bruce Wayne's psyche because um, right. that that's sort of, again, like the lineage of this entire trilogy is it's really a character study of Bruce Wayne and sort of how he processes the world around him. A, a billionaire who had, uh, inherited all this money from his parents who were killed right in front of his eyes when he was a young child that's that messes you up it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars if you're a human being and you see that that messes you up and we sort of track that progression throughout and i think that this one really sets it up in a really brilliant way because he he sort of secludes himself he becomes um entrenched in this training as we as we just mentioned with the league of shadows and Ra's al ghul um and then he comes back to society and and when he's back in society he's like i need to do something with all this training i need to protect the people of this city because that's who i'm meant to be and he like the sort of creation of the suit using and again this is where the the really um realistic aspect of it is roped in in a cool way because morgan freeman's lucius fox sort of brings in the um his R&D department to, to give basically what he's giving bruce wayne are sort of like defunct military um you know uh Pro- projects so, yeah projects and stuff like that that didn't didn't get off the ground or are still sort of being um worked on at wayne enterprises and he's using that to build his batman persona and sort of shaping again like instilling his own fears on other people and i think that this just does a really really good job of setting up that stuff and that's why i think it loses steam in that final 45 minutes because like you said 
Killian Murphy, you have such a good actor. Um, and then Ra's al Ghul coming back, obviously, we're going full spoilers. It should be um, no surprise <laughs> to anybody. Um, but when those two come in, it feels like sort of Christopher Nolan saying, oh, shit we need to wrap up this plot and we don't really have a plot to go. It's sort of, we're still tracking his origin. And mm-hmm. that's why I feel like it's sort of, um, it sort of deters from my enjoyment of that third act. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, in regards to like the execution of the movie as a whole, and I'm going to also talk about like the narrative structure between the three movies in the sense, but I think the reason being that this works so well for Nolan is because he is a very practical guy. Like if he doesn't see a use for computers or CGI, he won't use it. He'll use it as a last resort. And I think that Batman as a story, Batman as a character, leads himself more to our tool, our tour filmmaking is because it's so grounded. It's very much in tune with uh, who we are as individuals, who we are as humans. Like if we had, you know, billions of dollars, and if we were orphans, <laughs> we would become Batman ourselves. But he also he also gives justification to a lot of the stuff that we see Batman with in the comics, like especially with the cape. Like I feel like the cape within the comics is just something that's for fashion or something that doesn't really have any actual usage, proper actual usage. But I think with with Nolan, he saw a way to weave that into the story. Like he wants Batman to be able to fly, so he introduces mm-hmm. like this uh, electric uh, magnetic. Uh, uh, response to like the fabric that Batman uses for the cape so that he can't he is able to go weave between the buildings or jump from high places without hurting himself and, and even the ears even the ears is like it's so he can hear and spy right. and stuff like that do the detective work that he needs to do and same with same with the Batmobile he wants to use he wants something robust he wants something that's you know not easily uh being able to take down being taken down by his rogues gallery as well as the police because the police is pretty much after him throughout the three movies and you know i think you know the way he weaves these aspects of batman within the story it kind of makes him more relatable i think that's why we like these movies so much is because Mm -hmm. we can see them as practical and i think when we're talking about chris nolan and his commitment to practicality and you know using model sets and trying to be as you know real life as possible you can kind of attribute the same practice to stanley kubrick who is very uh he just how do you how do you say he was very meticulous that's the word i was looking for yeah yeah, his execution of the way that he wants his movies to be like it's either his way or they don't do it at all and i think that's why i think you could say that chris nolan's the modern day stanley Kubrick because of the way he handles the practicality of his movies you can see that a lot within the batman trilogy because of how grounded the character is and how uh how able how he's able to make us to relate to the character so much because he is a human he is someone that can can be hurt and um you know his his motivations are set so well that they're justifiable in the sense of the universe that we're uh, experiencing within the three movies yeah and i think this is sort of a good place for us to transition into the second entry of the franchise because (laughs) um where i think batman begins actually the conclusion after after the sort of big action sequence that i don't like all that much ends we get another close personal moment with bruce and rachel and sort of the destruction of wayne manor and -hmm. again it's setting the stage like you just said of this sort of um very close to home tale of bruce and what he's going through and his relationship with the people around him with his environment and then his city as well because you know his home is destroyed and then his relationship with rachel is destroyed because she tells him as long as you need batman we cannot be together and um that's that's sort of the biggest motivator for bruce throughout this entire thing is rachel and um and you know also his relationship with gordon and whatnot but let's go ahead and get into the dark knight now and and i i told 
Sam before we started recording. I was like, I feel like my entire <laughs> life has been leading up to this moment because like I've never properly gone in depth into the Dark Knight in a like I've had discussions with people here and there, but like I've never right. gone on the record with any of these discussions. So um, right. I'm gonna have a lot to talk about here, but like let me let me start by asking you because I think that this movie is pretty seminal in sort of both of our um, appreciation of film and really the people that we are today. So let, let's start mm-hmm. there, and why, why don't you start us off? Well, I think when we're talking about Dark Dark Knight, I think the the crux of every conversation is Heath Ledger, and like when I'm trying to think of other actors that have, have affected me the way that Ledger's performance affected me when watching this movie, I can only think of like cliche answers like uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather 2 or Dan Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. Like it's just like these well-regarded and cliche answers to the ever-persistent question of you know favorite. Uh, actors or favorite performances for actors within movies but when I'm talking about Heath Ledger I think you know um, I think I'm not the only one I think you could say yourself that this is probably the greatest villain we've ever seen within the genre not even within the genre within film as a whole like Mm -hmm. if he's not top three for you I don't know if you're watching enough movies or you're you're pretentious if if he's not (laughs) if you're pretentious or you just like close yourself off to the amazing incredible and you know, it's like lightning in the bottle for Heath Ledger's performance, and I think that's why I think that's like the main reason why I love this movie so much. And I think this is a movie that's within both of our top tens. I think, right? It's in yes. mine. I don't. Yeah. So it's in both of ours, and like, I can't think five. of even watching the movie itself. Not even just outside of Heath Ledger, I can't think of any actual huge criticisms I can have for the film because it's just it's so well edited, it's so well acted. You know, Hans Zimmer did his fucking thing with this movie, as well as Wally. <laughs> Wally Fisher, I think, created the best shots out of the entire trilogy with mm-hmm. The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chris Nolan I kind of, he, again, revamped or kind of re or introduced a new way of filmmaking with the IMAX cameras. Like, mm-hmm. up until that point in 2008, they were only used for, like, documentary filmmaking. Like, you could see, like, yeah. penguins walking across the ice or <laughs> you could see, like, birds flying in the sky or whatever it is. But Chris Nolan saw, like, that you could use it for large-scale action-heavy um, this these grand uh, set, set pieces within the genre itself. And, you know, I think I was, like, watching, like, the... Um, the focus points for the for the movie and they were saying like the regular 35 mil that he usually shoots with weigh around 25 to 30 pounds with like the other equipment that they use to help them navigate themselves with the cameras with the imx cameras these things are huge like for this movie they weighed 100 pounds and crystal got the most use out of them and you can tell by the fact that he destroyed one of them there was only four in the world at the time <laughs> and he destroyed one of them i think it was during the sequence in the tunnel with uh when they were trying to when heath ledger or joker was trying to kill harvey dent when they were trying to escort him to a county jail after he says that he was batman um but i think yeah every aspect of the movie the cinematography the score the direction heath ledger's performance um i think the underrated I'll, I'll get into it later i think i'll just you know go ahead and let you say your words before i get into like the other aspects of the movie sure um so yeah my this this film like this is the reason that i am as obsessed with film as i am and obviously like i had quite a bit of attachment to like animated films and pixar and star wars growing up but like i i, I vividly remember like so, um, a mid like summer and after high school or during high school and like i had an hbo trial for like a month and so like 
Dark Knight was on HBO at that time, so you know they're gonna they're gonna rotate their hot ticket item multiple times a day. Um, within that month, in that free trial of HBO, I watched The Dark Knight 50 times, um, and that was really sort of like because I had seen it in theaters not long before that. So this I I believe it came out in theaters uh, mid July, and then this was like August um, or the the next August. So like it was the year after, and I hadn't seen it since because I didn't have the Blu-ray or whatever. But I it it was kind of one of those things that the conversation around it was really stuck in my head. And then obviously Heath Ledger won the uh, posthumous Oscar and whatnot. But like I I hadn't quite dug into it in a certain way. And then yeah, this like the summer I sat down, I watched it fifty times, and I just like <laughs> I, I I just like I was. It was opened my eye to like a whole new caliber of filmmaking. Um, you talked about Nolan's practicality. That's something that really, really works for me. Um, the most obvious example in this film is like the truck sequence. Like he literally mm-hmm. just flipped a truck in the middle of the streets of Chicago to make this movie and make that scene. But like on top of that, like the sort of um, the apex of action, like the action scene, this thing are like all timers. The music, like you said, Hans Zimmer's um, Hans Zimmer's incredible score. And then, yeah, Heath Ledger's performance. It was sort of like it was the first time where like I was watching somebody on screen and i kind of understood really what the art of acting was because i was like i'm terrified of this person i don't know who if there's anybody in our world that's like him but Mm -hmm. like and i know that this is a fictional character but um i'm terrified i'm absolutely terrified of it's like a horror Mm -hmm. film and then i just like yeah yeah, go ahead no i was gonna say like before this movie came up during like the production or the marketing of it with the posters saying why so serious with blood on like the on the glass in front of the joker i thought this movie was a horror movie before it came out it really exudes that vibe. That was like sort of the conversation. Cause like, again, I remember like, cause I had seen Batman begins in theaters, but like, it was sort of before my time, before I was really like, really, really interested in what Christopher Nolan was doing. Cause I, I just kind of went into it blind cause it was a Batman movie. And then I, I went and I remember like, even my parents were talking about this thing and Heath Ledger's performance. In it, and I remember, I, I just remember all those conversations so vividly, but like to get a little bit more specific about what, about the film is so special to me it's it's even i think it's the most grounded in this entire series and i think that's part of why it works so well because it really feels like out of the three movies this is the one that feels like okay this all could actually happen in Mm -hmm. our actual world like this this more than any of the other films could feel like this one feels like the most real um and i think like you know sort of on its surface surface and why this thing went on to make a billion dollars and became sort of the iconic film that it is is because first and foremost is just it's a great action film and like anybody can go into this thing and watch it and have a lot a good time with it because it's just a great action action film um you know from the opening heist with with and joker's intro oh, yeah. mm-hmm. to, the, to the chase scene with harvey dent that you were talking about like it's very inspired by heat um christopher nolan has come out and say that he's did he's done like talks on heat and talked about how like sort of the crime and mob bosses and corrupt corrupt businessmen and all that how that influenced the way that he made this and those um those influences are very very clear um but i think what is also so brilliant this is obviously thoughts that have sort of developed over my over 100 times watching the movie now is it's um you know it, it is a very brilliant commentary on society i think first and foremost as well it sort of talks about the dark depths of humanity and what we as a society can become um but it's also what we were talking about with batman begins batman's relationship with that society and his home and this place that he's um sort of put on himself to protect because of the things that have happened to him and it's an extension then of that psyche exploration that batman begins took on and, and i know that joker is sort of the highlight and this movie obviously does not work without Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker in the way that it does. Um, but I think it's unfair to say that this is just Heath Ledger's movie because I think Christian Bale is just as brilliant. And um, it's just not a flashy performance. But the sort of small contemplated moments that Chris- Christian Bale like exudes in this film are just – it's 
exceptional acting. Um, I I I stand tall on this hill that Christian Bale should have been Oscar nominated for this performance. This is easily the best performance of his career. I I, I don't feel exaggerated in saying that. I I think if you really again when you've watched this movie a hundred times and you really really dig into the small nuances of the way that he's um he's portraying this really damaged individual and and sort of how his psychology is operating, you can see everything on his face, and that alone is is really just brilliant and when it's you know when when you're juggling the sort of aspect of the personal relationship with rachel and harvey and and alfred and gordon and then you're sort of then talking about like we said just sort of society how how did society react to him and then society turns on him and that's an even more continual pressure on this character that really just completely messes up his his worldview and i just think that that's such a a brilliant thing to do to your hero and um while the joker doesn't necessarily win in this film it does have a pretty dark sort of empire strikes back ending in a way because batman Mm. has then been um i'll get into that in a second but you know (laughs) on on top of all that like you know the, the performances all around are great like uh Maggie Gyllenhaal coming in here and taking over for Katie Holmes was like the best thing that could have happened to this because she's just outstanding as Rachel and like the emotional payoff of Rachel's death. I I know a lot of people talk about Christopher uh, Nolan being a bit of a cold filmmaker. If you don't, if you don't feel something when Batman walks into that room, knowing that he's going after Rachel just because that is the one thing that's really driving him above all else. And Mm -hmm. he sees Harvey there and he's just like, fuck like like that if that doesn't hit you i don't understand what what would but then like the sort of triangle with him and harvey and then like i just think that there's there's just so much depth to bruce's arc here and we'll get into the joker we'll get into the joker more but like this movie just as much okay so (laughs) there's a lot to unpack there's a lot of stuff that i was going through my mind i feel like i should be typing while you're while you're talking because there's a lot of points i want to talk to you about so i'm just gonna say remind me i'm gonna say i'm gonna talk about I'm, right now, I'm talking about Christian Bale. I want to talk about Ledger's relationship with uh, Chris Nolan. I want to talk about Aaron Eckhart. And I also forgot to talk about the narrative structure within three movies. So if I forget something, remind me because these are points I want to talk about. But okay. I'm, I'm, we're, we're kind of insane that we haven't talked about Christian Bale up until this point because I feel like when we're talking about Nolan and the dynamics he has with his, with his actors, um, you know, I think there's like it's, like, it's, it's a bit of a match made in heaven because of how serious they take their craft like within with christian bale for one he was in the machinist before uh, batman begins mm-hmm. he was at 120 pounds mm-hmm. he got into a six month you know eating and exercise regimen diet regimen with a uh, with like the studio execs and people and nutritionists and, and trainers or whatever it is he gained 100 pounds for the fucking role in batman begins so if you've seen the photos if you juxtapose his character like that's not cg that's literally christian bale emaciated to the point where he might actually die then he goes on a six month you know diet and uh diet and exercise binge and comes for into the batman begins at 220 pounds told him he was too fat he lost 20 pounds to get more lean for the role so considering the fact that he's that dedicated to his role and considering the fact of how chris nolan picks his actors and how he executes his movies I think that when we're talking about dynamics or duos with uh, directors and actors, uh, I think uh, we should mention the fact that Chris Dolan and 
uh, Bale are like, you know, a match made in heaven because of how they both approach their craft. Even, I mean, Chris Nolan said himself, uh, he said, Christian Bale decided early on in the audition process that he didn't want to play Batman straight, but to play him as a rage-filled monster. Figuring that it might polarize writer and direct Chris Nolan, to his delight, Nolan was thrilled with his off-kilter interpretation. So they brought the best out of each other within these three movies. And that goes to show because of that quote I just said. And um, uh, what was I saying? So Ledger and Ledger and Nolan. So we're talking Bale and Nolan. Now we're talking Ledger and Nolan. Ledger and Nolan. So when we're so he was Heath Ledger was considered for the role of Batman, but they had a great dialogue between the between each other with Ledger and Nolan, and they both agreed that he wasn't the best fit for Batman. But Nolan did want him to be a part of the the trilogy. So when it came to Joker, he just gave it to him straight up, and uh, even before a script was created, that's how much he trusted uh, Ledger. And the reason being, he said that he was quote unquote fearless. So Nolan knows what he's doing when he's uh, crafting these roles and picking specific actors because that uh casting was met with a lot of controversy because a lot of controversy up 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 until that point he was just seen as a leading man most famously for 10 things i hate about you and i myself if i was attuned to like the film industry up until that time at that time i would have myself said what the fuck is nolan thinking this guy is just like a a cute boy why would he how he how could he play joker we've never seen him play these sort of roles but then you know, we could see that how much Nolan trusted Heath because within the two POV uh, camcorder shots we see in the movie, the first one was supervised by the executive producers, the writer, and Chris Nolan himself while uh, Heath was doing the cameras by himself. Nolan was so happy with how that turned out that when he's uh, recording uh, the anchor for that one from one of those news stations after the hospital blows up, he was just by himself. There was no Nolan, there was no Goyer, there was no uh, Jonathan Nolan, there was no producers on stage. It was him and the actor. That's how much he trusted Heath Ledger to portray uh, Joker on scene. And even Heath Ledger himself, he spent, you know, fam- most famously he spent like a, a six months, I think, or something like that, six weeks at a hotel by himself, just trying to think of uh, ways to uh, develop the voice for the Joker, develop his laugh. And he, was, he actually kept a journal of the stuff that the Joker himself would find funny, like cancer, AIDS, blind babies, and that kind of. Uh, I think at that point, when after he passed, people were kind of like uh, saying that the reason he overdosed was because of his role as a Joker. But that's been disproven because, for one, everyone was saying that he was, you know, happy on on, you know, he was he was a great friend on on screen with them, and his sister came out and said that even before the Dark Knight trilogy was something that was a part of Heath's life. He would uh, combine his like sleeping medication with other medications and other drugs. And the concoction that he used and that he did pass was something that was fatal to him. So you can't really blaming the Dark Knight for Heath Ledger's is completely inappropriate. I'm just going to put that out there. But, um, you know, if we have, we have veteran actors in this, in this movie, one of them being Michael Caine. And there was an anecdote that I saw when I was researching for this podcast. And it said that, no, the first time that Michael Caine saw Heath Ledger was during that scene in the penthouse. Michael Caine is a veteran actor proven both on stage and on screen. He isn't someone who's known to fuck up on his lines, fuck up his acting. But when he saw Heath Ledger coming out of that, out of that elevator, he was completely shocked. He did not know his lines. He just looked at him in complete fear. And that's the kind of actor that... Um, 
Heath was like when he was like doing scenes with um, what was the actor's name? I think it was James Gordon during a sequence uh, with uh, with Gary Oldman. I, I might be getting this wrong. I don't know who the actor was, but he was like, no, no, it was him and Aaron Eckhart inside the hospital scene. So the anecdote was that Aaron Eckhart, I mean, uh, Heath Ledger was um, in, in character and Aaron Eckhart was just watching him just pace around the room, just mumbling to himself within character. And, you know, Aaron Eckhart said that himself that he was saying that he was like, in a cold sweat. He was, he was fearful. And he was like, uh, he did this thing where he like very quickly raised his hand aggressively as a part of the scene. And then uh, Heath Ledger mirrored him and that scared Aaron Eckhart. And after Nolan yelled cut, he went back to his normal stuff and he just goes, that's what acting is all about. So the influence that Heath had, on this movie wasn't only felt by the audience members, but it was felt by the people within the production process as well. Yeah. I, I want to go back to something that the point that I was making, like with, again, like uh, we'll, I'll get into Heath in a second because like Heath, <laughs> Heath, Heath is the reason why this film is what it is, but it, this, none of this works without Bruce Wayne and sort of his mental exploration that Chris Nolan planted the seeds for in Batman Begins and extended here. And like I said, those deteriorating relationships around him, Rachel's now with another man, his city is starting to betray him. Um, The villains are getting the best of him. That is putting Mm -hmm. this man in a very difficult position considering the circumstances that he set himself up for. And that's why the Joker coming in here is such a brilliant next step for this franchise because the Joker, as we all know, is sort of the um, the epitome of the best villain for the Batman, especially because he's um, he's basically he's going for the same thing as as the Batman is, which is like sort of taking over, not taking over, but sort of the heart winning winning the heart of the city in a way, mm-hmm. the um, soul. and yeah. the soul of the city. Yeah, and that is um, that is obviously something that Bruce Wayne wants to do, but that's something that Joker is coming at with a very different approach, and it's this very um, it's this very strong push and pull that um that is the reason why this film ultimately does end up working because then you challenge that sort of psychological battle that bruce is having with somebody who is um who's coming up to bruce and telling him like you know people have died because of you and he's you know his the the joker's whole thing is anarchy and chaos Mm -hmm. and like you know that the Joker knows exactly what's going to tick off Batman, what's going to get the best of Batman. And he's, um, he has a very specific line in the film that do I look like a guy with a plan? Um, Mm -hmm. he doesn't necessarily have a quote unquote plan, but he knows his sort of, he's playing sort of a sim, an interesting game of chess in that he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily have an end game, but he knows exactly what his next step is going to be. And, you know, I think the obvious sort of epitome of that situation is him is the Rachel situation um, where he kills off Rachel because, you know, he, he knows that first off he's going to, he's going to get interrogated. He's going to, well, he's going to seal Harvey. Then they're going to bring him in and he, he knows he's going to get captured. And then he knows that he's going to start saying like, Oh, I've captured Harvey. You guys don't know where he is. And then when Batman comes in, he's going to be like both of them. And then Batman's like, both of them what, what are you talking about and he's you know he obviously introduces rachel there and then he sets sends bruce to the the wrong location knowing that not only will rachel be dead but then bruce will pin that death on himself further mm-hmm. than spiraling bruce to an even darker depth than he already was and it's you know it, it's all sort of um is all sort of amplified in the the line that the joker has when an instop- unstoppable force meets an immovable object it's it's this very very perfect push and pull of a hero and villain and it's just like 
it, it, there's no better way to take that natural next step in this franchise than introducing the Joker and sort of setting Bruce up for the third installment in the franchise. Um, but uh, but what, what are your thoughts on sort of, do you have any additional follow-ups to that? Because I, I certainly have more stuff that's a little bit off the Joker. Well, yeah, you mentioned something that, you know, that the Joker doesn't win in this movie, and that's something that's proven wrong even by Jim Gordon saying that the Joker he, does win in the So so here's the thing. He <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't get what he's looking for. So so what I said was in a in the end the Joker doesn't get what he's looking for, but in a way he still ends up winning because okay. he forces Batman into hiding. And it's just like And that's that, something that, that Bane exploits in the next movie. Exactly. And that was what was what I was going to say is people often criticize Christopher Nolan as being sort of a, a plotting writer. I think there's actually a lot of brilliance in this script, a lot of intelligence in the script. You know, there's obviously the iconic lines. Why so serious? You have the dire hair live long enough to see yourself become the villain. But um, what it is, is it's not plotting. It's it's developing the, the sort of th- narrative through line that will get us to that end game. And yeah, that what you were just saying with with Gordon, yeah, it's it's then M, it's then this perfectly personified in, in Gordon's final lines. And like every time I hear those lines, because we have to chase him, because he's the hero that Gotham deserves, not mm. the one he eats right now. We hunt mm-hmm. him because he can take it, not because he's a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. It's just like, yeah, people don't talk like that in real life, but that's that's just the beauty of cinema, the swell of Hans Zimmer's score, Batman riding off into the dark tunnel with his cape sort of flapping behind him on his on his motorcycle. It's just like, it's perfect filmmaking. And I, I will fight, <laughs> I tweeted out earlier this week, like bring on your dar- your uh, bad takes about the Dark Knight because I'm ready to knock them the fuck down. Because I, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this is a perfect movie. And again, I said it at the top of this thing, I think Christopher Nolan has made quote unquote better movies and I think he will continue to make better quality, more narratively firm movies. But I think that if you don't understand the significance of this film and just appreciate it for what it is, you know, it's very it's very intentionally blending comic book and real life. And I think, you know, you have to have a little bit of the balance of the two, even though you're leaning more and skewing more towards the realistic, you still have to bring that comic bookiness into it. And when you, when you have that sort of ending line, what you're talking about, it sort of contributes then to what the situation that Bruce is in, how the Joker kind of technically has one, but then also it is sort of, um, it's getting us in a certain emotional state. And I think it's really just Christopher Nolan being like, look what I can do as a director. (laughs) Look what I can do as a storyteller. It's brilliant. So I'm going to say something real quick. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to go ahead and w- go with the Joker because I already talked about Heath and Nolan. So I'm going to let you go ahead and talk about the Joker. And I'm just going to end it with uh, Aaron Eckhart as Two-Face because I feel like he's kind of shunted when we were talking about this movie. He's brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant in this thing. Right, because I feel like I, I have this uh, concept in my head that says uh, if you're in a Nolan movie, you're pretty much set for life. And that's something that uh, Timothy Chalamet himself has experienced, you know, he thought that it was his big break with Interstellar, and, you know, it, it came to nothing, because he was just, like, a very small, small, small role. I even forgot he was in the movie, but with Aaron Eckhart, you know, he kind of, uh, after this movie, he hasn't pretty much made anything of that's noteworthy, unless you can think of something off the top of your head, but... Um, uh, Sully. He's good in Sully. Haven't seen Sully, so... Okay. <laughs> um, well, there's one scene that I was just talking about earlier with the hospital sequence, and that, uh, with but it was with Jim Gordon and uh, Harvey Dent and you know he's like uh, his thing is covered with a uh, with bandages his face is covered with bandages because of the burn that happened after uh, Batman rescues him and um, Jim Gordon is telling him the situation he's like you know Rachel's gone and you know we get this pause and then all of a sudden he just loses his shit but we don't hear anything 
and it's just Hans Zimmer's, you know, his, his ringing from the score and him just going completely apeshit. He's like ripping the bandages off himself. He's screaming his lungs. And I just feel like that's a highlight of the movie that no one talks about. But the other one being the climax between Gordon, uh, Batman, and Two-Face. And, you know, that's kind of uh, Two-Face's uh, apex as a character within the trilogy. And Eckhart could have played this as cartoonish, as or he could have made it cartoonish and because of how much he has to yell and how much he has to portray his anger. But when it comes to it, that monologue and he, when he's yelling at Gordon... You can just his 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 anger is justifiable. It's palpable. It's tangible. I mean, you can feel the emotion coming off the screen with Harvey Two Face and how much of uh, how the Joker has kind of affected his life and the loss of Rachel and how it's affected him as an individual and how it's changed him. And we could see the juxtaposition between who he was when the movie started and who he was at the very end. And I think that Eckhart plays that dichotomy very very well. Eckhart is certainly an unsung hero of this movie. I think this is, you know, continuing on the trend, this is probably, like, his best performance. This is obviously the performance he's most well-known for. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that Harvey's character arc in this thing is also so brilliant because he's obviously sort of a foil for Bruce at the beginning, but then Bruce quickly sort of latches onto him, holds the fundraiser, and starts to believe in in Harvey Dent. I believe in Harvey Dent. He says that, and I think he means (laughs) it, even though Rachel sort of jabs at him a little bit about it. He, He very much believes it when he says it. And I think that that, you know, that sort of arc extends to the scene where he trusts Harvey to come out and say, I'm the Batman, because he he knows that Harvey knows that Batman is going to do the right thing, which is to save his ass again, quoting the movie. Um, and then like it, it sort of extends then to um, Bruce's Bruce's plight with Harvey and his relationship with Harvey is sort of he sees Harvey as the white knight of Gotham and Gotham mm-hmm. savior. And, you know, that works for him in two ways. He sees it as sort of being the protector of Gotham. So he doesn't need to be Batman. So then he can be with Rachel. And it's again for his own benefit. And I think that that the psycho- psychology of that is very interesting, but also it, just having somebody who is a person with a face that the, the city can uh, rest its stress and shoulders on is, is, is very important. I think he sees a lot of that in Harvey. And what he's then trying to do from a certain point in this film is to protect Harvey from the Joker because he knows the Joker is targeting Harvey because the Joker knows that Harvey is the that hero that the Batman sees. Because, again, the Joker knows exactly what the Batman is thinking and doing at all times of the day. And, and I think that that is so interesting because it, it's sort of a callback. Um, and what I think Batman's worst fears are realized in that moment, because like you said, it, it's a very devastating, very heartbreaking, very difficult to watch moment. And um, and, and Aaron Eckhart has a line there that's, you know, it's not about what I want. It's about what's fair. Right. And it's a callback, therefore, from that moment. Um, it, it, again, why it's Batman's worst nightmare realized is because it's it's the truth that the Joker has, therefore, like he, up until this point, you know, you could have argued maybe he's being manipulated a little bit, but this is where you realize that Joker has really influenced Harvey because it, it's a callback to that hospital scene that you were talking about where the Joker says introduce a little anarchy, um, you know, and he's talking about chaos and he says, that, you know, what, you know, what's great, great about chaos, it's fair. And it's mm-hmm. it's really the, bringing that whole entire thing full circle of the person that Batman was resting his shoulders on has now fallen as well. And it's like it, at this point, Bruce is basically in this complete downward spiral. Everything has fallen apart. He has to run away. He has to go into hiding. And that's why I said that it's the Empire Strikes Back type ending where the Joker doesn't win. You know, on its surface, he doesn't win, but he overtly. very much. Yeah, overtly, he does not win. But he very much actually technically does win, and it's a very dark ending for the Batman to go into hiding and and the police and, and like you know you you instill the Harvey Dent act and and 
rises and all that, and it, it sort of changes the direction of this franchise. But it's all built on a lie. It's all built putting, on a lie, and it's it's just brilliant. It's brilliant writing. Putting it in perspective, I've just realized how much I think maybe Nolan hates Bruce Wayne because he's just getting beaten to shit more and more and more throughout these movies. Because like in the first one, he loses his parents. He he's estranged from his 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 home. He loses his house, and then in the next one, he uh, loses his, the love of his life. He loses the person he's he's banking on to save Gotham City. Then within Rises, you know, he has his his entire arc there as well. But I don't want to get into that. But I know you want to say, do you want to say any other words for Joker? Or do you want me to get into my final thoughts on him before we move on? No, I, I'm kind of I've kind of been all over the place, and like I said, I have so many thoughts, but I hope that I've done a <laughs> relatively coherent job of, of putting it all together. I'll, I'll wrap up about the Dark Knight specifically by saying this: um, it to reiterate what I said earlier, um, it's it's the best next step from Batman Begins because Batman Begins is the origin, and this is the unraveling of the hero that we saw put on this pedestal in Batman Begins. This is everything around Bruce crumbling. And while the Joker is brilliant and Heath Ledger's performance, yeah, it's it's my favorite performance in film of all time because of what it means to me. It's what opened the mm-hmm. door to me again, what showed me what acting could really do, the fear that it could instill, the emotion that it could instill. There, There's nothing that comes close to it. But what this film is really about is that relationship between the Batman and the Joker. And while Heath Ledger is the is the hero, the true on its surface hero of this film, and and uh, sorry, not hero, I don't mean to use that word. He's a villain, obviously, but but he he is the shining he is the shining point of the film, and you cannot doubt that. And the reason I'm not spending more time about that is because I spent so much time in my life emphasizing what Heath Ledger's performance meant to me and how important that performance is and how brilliant it is. I want to take some time here to shed some light on Bruce Wayne's okay. part in this film because it's just like that's. People don't, I think people don't understand that. That, that. That's why this film works so well is because it's those two forces clashing together. And while you have this brilliant performance from a brilliant actor in, in one of the most iconic roles of all time, it, it's butting up against a hero who is giving an actor who is giving one of his greatest performances ever in a role where he has to unpack so much in his own mind. And it's just like, it, it, I keep using this term and there's no better way to describe it. It's a push and pull. It's a push and pull. And that's why this film, it just keeps you on edge. It keeps you guessing. You don't know what's going to happen uh, in that boat scene. Those people could very much blow each other up. We don't know because it's not the end of the world. It's not it's not the nuclear bomb from Dark Knight Rises. The Joker could very much instill the chaos and, you know, still end up in Arkham at the end of the film. But those people could have blown each other up and we could have taken an even darker turn in this franchise. But we don't know. And that's the brilliance of this writing. That's the brilliance of the story. That's the brilliance of the Dark Knight. I don't know if I want to talk about this point now or if we should wait for the legacy part, because I wanted to reference maybe why Christian Bale wasn't nominated for this movie or should we just wait until the very end let's let's wait till the end because i definitely okay. have some thoughts on that well a couple of little smaller points with ledger as heath because i just wanted to say this i just feel like the reason being that he just like he becomes the character of the joker like you don't see heath at all throughout this entire movie he embodies the character so well i don't think that it will ever we will ever see a villain like this in our lifetime at the very least so, I mean, when we're talking about Heath as the Joker, we're talking about Joker and his character within the movie, and his character is just the embodiment of, you know, you said you said chaos, his anarchy. He doesn't have a plan. He's a what was the what was the line? He's a dog chasing cars. He wouldn't He's know what to do if he didn't if he couldn't catch one or if he mm-hmm. if he caught one. Mm-hmm. But um, I think like. Heath, the way he talks, the inflection of his voice, the way he walks, he's like a ticking time bomb. Like we see who he is and what he's capable of, but you know there's something more within himself. 
as the Joker. And we see that in smaller, minor bursts, most, most famously, or more importantly, in the, um, with he's, when he's talking to the fake Batman, um, he's like, he's like talking to him. He's like, say this, and he's giving him a script. And then after he finishes the script, he's like, look at me. And like, mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. feel that he has this festering rage within him. And that like, if he, if he does blow up at any other point in his life, you wouldn't want to be in the room with him because he's a completely maniacal psychopath. And he's a, serial killer and he's a murderer he's a they said it himself he's a terrorist and uh i think i don't know if you saw the the the, um the was it the video i sent you before we came on and like they were saying that the dark knight is the first post 9-11 noir and that's seen because of the hysteria that joker plays on the city of gotham they're calling him a terrorist and they're playing with the same themes of how america felt during the time of 9-11 and this i feel like that's why it's kind of elevated. Like this movie has so many layers, has so much depth to it. And it's, you know, the, the, the cherry on top of it being Heath Ledger as the Joker. Yeah. Um, one, one last thing, the interrogation scene is the greatest scene Ah, in cinema ever. (laughs) It's the greatest scene in cinema ever. Um, yeah, I I mean, I I would love to say more about this, but we're already running long and I want to get into rises, but, um, yeah, the dark Knight. the dark Knight is in my top 10, top five favorite films of all time it's the most important one of the most important films ever to me and and that's that's all i have to say about that i know I, yeah, I have fair. a lot more to say about that but we just don't <laughs> have the time for it uh, let's get into rises um I think Rises is really interesting because you're setting a bar at a certain place. And you talked about Chris Nolan sort of, um, you know, he had only signed on to Begins originally. It was, um, you know, not until maybe even after Inception that he had confirmed, until Inception was done that he had confirmed that he was going to do Rises again. So he was not even confirmed for this. And um, I think the bar that Batman, uh, or sorry, the Dark Knight sets, it sets a very difficult precedent for rises because it has to clear that bar in a certain sense and i don't think it does um but i think that this movie is very very unjustly maligned um it's got a lot of it's got a lot of criticism on it and i think that that you know that's sort of the um i think that's sort of the effect of popularity not just of the dark knight franchise but of christopher nolan i think recent like there was a certain point where we were like christopher nolan is the second coming of god like (laughs) we were we had very much accepted that as a film community and then all of a sudden all the critics and journalists were like no christopher nolan's not a good filmmaker and it's just like you all are stupid shut up we don't want to hear your opinions anymore um but i i think that's very because it's not the dark knight does not mean it's a bad movie and i think that this movie actually does have quite a few logistical flaws especially in the back half um and i understand those as criticisms but to say this is a bad movie because of that i think that's way unfair um this is again coming this is the the full close of of bruce's arc and i think that that's what christopher nolan understands about this is it's he's got to wrap up bruce bruce's trilogy this is bruce's trilogy before it's anything else and and i think that he wraps it up in a very fitting way um bruce's progression from recluse to coming out of retirement to being defeated to refining his fear the thing that started this whole entire journey for him using that to elevate him and help him quote-unquote rise and then come back to a city and save it and sacrifice himself quote-unquote sacrifice himself for it um this this movie's great i i don't i don't understand the criticism behind it and it just it makes no sense to me honestly well i just want to know what this movie could have been because you know all the villains from the other movies came for this movie. Like we see Ra's al Ghul's ghost in a sense. We see his daughter. We see um, Scarecrow. We see, I think, some of the Italian mobsters and the references to Harvey. Um, Chris Nolan himself did say that he was considering putting CG 
for the Joker as he or Heath as the Joker within the movie, but he felt like it, would, it could be it, would, it could be disrespectful. So he ultimately didn't do it. On top of the fact that this movie, the original script was 400 pages long, and the average being around 120 pages for an average movie. So I kind of try. I, I hate Nolan for him not doing this. He never does deleted scenes. He doesn't believe in director's cuts, and it's frustrates me. That it, it frustrates the hell out of me because he's just like. He just he, he doesn't he's believe so in directors he doesn't believe in directors cuz cuz he's, he's the only director that gets directors cut on the theatrical cut. That's, that's, that's what he says he says that whatever you see on screen is a director's cut but 400 pages long what else could the story have offered does cuz I feel like maybe like the minor flaws that this movie does have are uh solved within that 400 page script. But yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I don't know why people even shit on this movie in the way it is because like as i referenced in the beginning of us talking about this trilogy i consider it one of the greatest trilogies ever and i think this is a great cap to that trilogy i think that the flaws that it does have you can overlook them because of how well the story wraps up together so i did reference the fact that raj talked about the bruce wayne's arc within the within these three movies but as a narrative as a whole it does have that cohesiveness because of Ra's al Ghul so he is the main antagonist for the first one and the reason that I I guess I don't know if this is this is uh confirmed or if this is just a theory or something I just thought of myself but I feel like the reason that the Joker was a prevalent figure within the second one and even at the back end of Batman Begins is because all those uh inmates and the uh, patients from Arkham were let out during like the final third the during the third act of Batman Begins so he has that connection with Ra's al Ghul even though he's not a key figure within that second movie but then it kind of comes back to Ra's al Ghul's um plans for Gotham because he wants to destroy it because once a once a society reaches its its pinnacle its decadence whatever it is that he says that they go ahead and try to balance that by destroying them like they did it with Rome, they did it with London, they did it with the plague, and they just did it with a bunch of the other references that they made throughout the uh, movie. But within the three movie structure, within the trilogy, it does have a cohesiveness, and that's revolves around Ra's al Ghul's um, plan to destroy Gotham City. And another thing that I want to reference within this review is that um, I, how much I appreciate that Nolan didn't um, do the cliche of trying to save the world because. Uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman's dynamic within with the city itself is something that's you know prevalent within the three movies, and that's a much more intimate way of framing saving people as opposed to the world because the world's such a massive entity within and of itself that we can't really comprehend how important that is. But we were putting it in a more intimate sense with the city and something that we could probably put ourselves into and, and inject ourselves and what we do in those situations we could see we're we're more attached to what's going on on the screen so that dynamic between gotham and bruce wayne is the crux of all three movies and i think that's why these movies work so well with each other is because it's developed within those three movies even though it's not a huge and like and right on, not at center stage but something that's always hovering over you when you're when you're watching these three movies it's but the heart um, of it. it's the heart of the franchise. exactly it's, it's it's the heart of the franchise so um i want yeah, i also wanted to mention this is michael Caine at his best as alfred because he doesn't have as much to do comparatively to the other three the other two movies but he has the most emotional weight when it comes to this because he is the voice of reason for bruce and he's the one that kind of gives him that experience that you know that like the sage, the uh, mentor experience that you would see with a 
like, like a student and a master, but you know, Alfred being advanced in his years, he's just more of a somewhat of a caretaker for Bruce. But um, like the sequences when he's talking to him about like giving him the revelation that Rachel chose Harvey and that he just wants him to just put down the cave and cowl, settle down, find someone you love, and just move on with your life because if you continue on this path, you will die, and I can't see another person from the Wayne family die. And you just feel that weight just on Michael Caine's face when he's portraying those words, especially even at the end of the movie where he's just talking in front of uh, Thomas, Martha, and Bruce Wayne's gravestones at front of Wayne Manor. He's just like, I failed you. And he's just like sobbing. And like, I feel like every time I watch those scenes, I just like, I I feel I'm there with him. Like, I just like, I, I wanted to give him a hug during those scenes because he just does it so incredibly well. He wears the emotions on his sleeve and he's the heart of all three of these movies. There, there's one thing I want to go back to. I think the Joker thing, that was debunked. I, I do need to do a little bit of research because it's been a few years since I looked into that. But I don't think the Joker was ever supposed to have a presence in The Dark Knight Rises because Heath passed before The Dark Knight even came out. And like I said, Chris Nolan was not attached to the third installment. Um, So I do need to I do need to go back and look at that because it's been a few years since I looked into that. But I believe that rumor was debunked. Mm, okay. um, so I just want to put that out there. But also I do want to touch on what you said Um where this the, the sort of tie-in of Ra's al Ghul and I think that that's another thing that doesn't get appreciated about this film enough is that it it's very much a follow-up to the Dark Knight and that it's it's setting the stage of Gotham post Harvey Dent's death and without Batman for eight years uh, mm-hmm. Bruce has not left his house for eight years um and I think that that is very interesting but it is also a completion of the trilogy and why again I say that this is a proper narrative through line between the entire series and I don't understand that criticism because like I said Bruce's psychological development throughout this entire thing is key but also it ties in the plot points from batman begins and brings that all to a full head and and brings that appropriate villain back to the back to the um front of the front of the the screen and i think that that's very important and again it's it's sort of why this thing works in a in a full trilogy sense not just in a single film sense um i think i also appreciate with the introduction of bane how it's sort of it makes the villain actually I'll, I'll talk about michael kane first because yeah i agree 100 percent. michael kane has a very interesting arc um throughout this entire franchise because he's sort of batman's sidekick throughout the first two as he is in the comic books um but in this one yeah he is sort of sidelined because he and i and there's this is another criticism i've heard about this franchise like i said i'm here to knock your <laughs> all your criticisms on their ass because um the the people say you know through the first two films Alfred is Bruce's sidekick and Batman's sidekick. And then in this one, he's saying, don't go out there, find your life, let it put this thing to rest. And people, people criticize that because they say, why were you saying in one movie that you were going to help him? And then in the next movie saying, you're not going to help him. That, that if you if you don't understand that then you don't understand how movies work it's, it's an eight year time it's an eight year time jump this guy has broken his leg he has concussions his body's damaged he got he, shot I, at the end of the dark night exactly he, he got <laughs> shot and he fell off a like a building like what do you expect of course he's going to be injured and broken and of course alfred is going to be it's, like all right it's you called are not development a, it's called exactly <laughs> he, he, he's clearly not in the shape to be fighting and that's why alfred has changed his perspective and again there's eight years in between from when we last saw him a lot of things change a lot of conversations are had a lot your mind develops in a certain way alfred is obviously going to approach this the way that he's approaching it i think that that is if you're going to criticize that then then just i don't know i i I really don't understand that criticism um (laughs) but but the other but like the other thing that gets criticized in this a lot is bane and that's another thing that i don't understand because i think tom hardy first off is great Um, wait hold on who's criticizing tom hardy as bane i've never 
everybody because his voice thing and because he's now i love his voice i think it's great i think i think it's <laughs> great God. first off like I, I just don't understand that at all like i think his performance is great because I, I actually like the mask aspect of it um but i also think there's so much conveyed from his eyes and that that's sort of again a testament to what tom hardy can do as a director um but i think also tom hardy is an actor Sorry, yes, yeah, an actor. Sorry, um, but I think also what I like is sort of the pivot from um, having two more cerebral villains in um, a Ra's al Ghul and Scarecrow, and then also a Joker, to having a imposing physical presence who can actually break Batman's back in battle. Like we haven't really seen Batman and Bruce Wayne go up against that sort of challenge, and um, I think it's a good thing for this franchise because it keeps things fresh. It doesn't sort of rehash the old stuff, and that's something that. Christopher Nolan has done throughout this franchise he never does the same thing he always does something different and like you said yeah there is the introduction of the bomb aspect of it but it's it's not a global scale issue it is very personal to Gotham and again it's it's containing Bruce's arc within Gotham and the city that raised him and the city that he cares so much about and like again I I, I really just don't understand the criticisms behind this thing because i think it all pretty narratively cohesively comes together and i think the biggest criticism is how does bruce get from outside the the hole to gotham yeah that that's a little bit of a logistical jump but if you're gonna say this is a bad movie because of that i, I really truly do not understand that at all that's what i'm saying it has its minor flaws like one of them being um well hold on before i even say that tom hardy's physical performance like you don't really see him emote because his face is covered up but his physical he's he's an insanely imposing figure not only in the sense of his physicality but he's also bruce wayne's like mental uh, opponent as well because he manipulated daggett to get mm -hmm. into gotham mm -hmm. to to remove all the money from bruce wayne's wealth so that he could just bring him to his barest and in his, in his most you know at his at his lowest essentially Very before he point. did fight before he did fight him off so he's tearing him down before he even confronts him and that just goes to show the planning that goes into who uh bane was before he uh is even introduced on screen with a uh, um batman and all and all the other characters within gotham i also wanted to say did you notice that each of the three villains are introduced as the henchmen of themselves before they're revealed to be the actual antagonist Yes, you're right. Actually, you're very. It, like, is, is Scarecrow the same way? That, that's the only one that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But I know. Oh, you're talking about Ra's al Ghul because he's yeah, he has he's, the stand. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Hard. <laughs> and then, um, was it Joker? Is like the one of the highest figures. He doesn't talk yeah. until like the, he kills that other guy. Mm -hmm. He's always like just nodding no, no, or whatever. No, no. I killed a bus driver. Yeah. That's his first line. <laughs> his first line, and then with Bane, he's just like his face is covered, and he starts talking. And then we see that he is Bane. So he's just like. He is introduced as a henchman, but like I said, it's a fun trivia note to know about the, the trilogy. But um, so the way he manipulates the characters, like he like Daggett and his uh, assistant, I think his name is Striver, the way he manipulates them so he can get into Gotham and take Bruce Wayne and take his wealth away and bring him to his lowest before he confronts him. That's a it goes to, point. goes to show that he is not only his physical equal, but also his mental equal as well, because Bruce Wayne is shown to be a genius within the comics, but... Uh, I don't think when we're talking about Bane, people just think of him as just purely brawn figure. He's also like the brains of the operation as well. And you couldn't really do what he did in the movie if he didn't have some sort of, you know, genius IQ, right? Well, the I think the genius IQ we are led to believe is coming from Marion Cotillard's Talia Al Ghul, who's sort of the the person behind the the scenes who's pulling all the strings. And I think that 
I, I think that that's very clearly emitted throughout the film because we see that she is an intellectual um, equal to Bruce. And well, um, exactly what you're saying, it, it's sort of a it's a tandem right between the mm-hmm. two of them and they have to right. work as a pair to get to what um, where that end point is. And we don't see Talia throughout the entire thing because it's supposed to be the reveal. And um, but but we we are very much led to believe that Bane is. Yeah, Bruce is equal, like you're saying. And well, um while it is revealed that Talia is, is sort of the second in that in that tandem, I think we, we have to appreciate those two villains working together and being the sort of two-person team um, and overcoming what Bruce, whatever Bruce is trying to put against them. And I think that's very important to the development. And I, I, I agree definitely with what you're saying. Um, did, did you like the reveal of Marion Cotillard as Talia Ogul? Um, yeah, because I'm telling you that that's what it brings it all together, like the cohesiveness with Ra's al Ghul's original plan within the first movie, and then having his daughter trying to fulfill that same plan. I think it makes sense narratively. Yep. But one thing I did wanted to um talk about was a performance, two performance issues I saw within the movie. I'm really confused as to how this got past Chris Nolan, but um. Marion Cotillard herself has said that she's embarrassed at the way she died. Yeah, the end of the <laughs> that's, movie. that's really that's really like, bad. It's really she bad. she said like she doesn't know how that happened or how Crystal didn't catch it or how they didn't do more takes. But every time I watch it, I kind of cringe. Like, that's like it's a nitpick. It's a fair nitpick. The problem is it's a, long, it's a long death scene, so she has to keep talking throughout this entire thing after she's already crashed, and I think that's that's a difficult thing to do. But yeah, she's like sort of. I don't want to make light of this because I don't think it's worth joking or it's fair to joke about this, but like, it seems like she's sort of like having a seizure as she's dying. It's it's very awkward. And I agree 100% with you that it's, it's cringeworthy. And the same thing in the same, I think 10 to 15 minute difference. We see, uh, what's his name? John Blake uh, at the bridge. They blow up the bridge, but the way he jumps back is just so weird. Like it doesn't seem natural to me. Sure. But those are nitpicks I saw within the movie of, from performance-wise. But I think you know Anne Hathaway does a great job of. Oh, Catwoman. she's so good. I, she's I, so good. I she like did you know the anecdote of like she was like um told her agent that she wants to play Catwoman in the movie and if there is an opportunity like that that she should let her know. So she does audition. She didn't know she was auditioning for uh. Was her name Catwoman? She thought she was auditioning for Harley Quinn at first with Chris Nolan because of how secretly he keeps his, his scripts. So she auditions. Then after she auditions, Chris Nolan tells her that, yeah, you are Catwoman. Or no, I mean, you are auditioning for Catwoman. She's like, oh, well, OK, thank you. She goes home. Um, she's waiting for the call from her agent saying that she got the role. A couple, I think, weeks or something or, or a month goes by. Her, her agent calls her and immediately she just thinks that she got Catwoman. So she's screaming at the top of her lungs in her in her house. She's running around. She goes back to the phone and her agent tells her that, no, it's actually because you're a, you're a presenter at the Academy Awards. You didn't get the role. Celebrity problems. That's how you know that how, well, yeah, but that's not how much care she took into being Catwoman. You can see that on screen because she does a such a great job considering the fact of how pans and how you know like the the reputation for Halle Berry's portrayal of Catwoman was and how you know I could see how an actress would be reluctant to take on that role but she just but she also has to live up to Michelle Pfeiffer's uh in Batman Returns and I think that that's actually a really really great performance so I will say that well yeah I mean but you could tell that the care that she took into the role because of how much she cared about the character it's herself and you see that on screen because she does a great job on screen 
she she's one of the unsung heroes because i don't feel like people don't talk about her enough because the michelle pfeiffer performance is so iconic i'd say anne hathaway's performance is just as good as michelle pfeiffer's um i think this is also like the strongest oldman performance of the entire trilogy because mm-hmm. um, he has he has the most to do in this one i think he's really really strong and especially because he's now playing a broken man similar to bruce um and oldman is you know he's one of the greatest actors working today he he really handles that um i want to get because we are definitely going long so i want to sort of get into a little bit of the closing thoughts on this and i'll just say that like i i understand some of the logistical um flaws with this movie but i don't think it's I a don't. bad movie i can argue I, them <laughs> yeah i i certainly can too and, and i think what what <laughs> What stands out to me on every single rewatch is like the chills and the goosebumps that I get at the moments where Christopher Nolan is definitely trying to get chills and goosebumps out of you from Bruce's rise moment when he finally emerges mm. from the the prison to the fi- the closing moments of the film when when Michael Caine finally sees Bruce Wayne at the cafe that he talked about and he's like I know now you're living and like the music the swelling and Joseph Gordon-Levitt rising on the Batman platform like it's just it it all just comes together so beautifully and like while there might be some logistical flaws in it like how can you say that christopher nolan is a bad filmmaker when he does he when he evokes that kind of emotion now having seen this movie close to 50 times as well like i still every single time get just as emotional as i did the first time and i think that that's just a testament to how good this this film individually is well i wanted to shout out the uh aspect of this movie that does better than the other two movies and that's being the scale most importantly being the final sequence where you see the bat maneuvering itself throughout the buildings of gotham on top of the fact that we see like this incredible fighting sequence between bane and batman with like the backdrop of the entire city fighting against each other and with the snow and like the contrast and like the cinematography during that sequence is just fantastic i love People say that the fight sequence was anticlimactic. I don't agree at all. I feel like they did a great job in handling the confrontation between the two characters, especially being a rematch and how much Bruce has gone through up until that point. And, you know, him having his symbolic death um, of, uh, you know, taking the atom bomb and away from the city. Like, at least, you know, I don't know. It said the blast radius was six miles or six mile blast radius. It's like, a, like well deep into whatever ocean it is that they have in the DCEU. And, um, I think that's one of the logistical aspects of the people or people to kind of like talk about, but I think, you know, he's Batman. He, he fixed the autopilot. Um, you know, you could probably just say that he did get away. It's in some, 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 some sort of fashion. He probably, he probably could just like drop himself in the ocean, could have swam away or whatever it is. But the minor flaws that this movie has does not overshadow the quality of the movie itself. You can nitpick it, but I feel like that's a cheap way of trying to defend yourself when you're talking about why you don't like this movie. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think that's a good transition for us to get into sort of the legacy of the trilogy. Um, I think a lot of the legacy of this trilogy can be pinned on the Dark Knight. Um, Let's try to get through this quickly, because like I said, we are going long. So yeah, I I think the legacy of this trilogy, I I think a lot of it can be pinned on the Dark Knight. And the reason being because that was, you know, the first one, Batman Begins did well, but the the turning point of really when people were like okay we can give we can give Christopher Nolan a blank check and let him do whatever he wants was the Dark Knight um, but also what's really interesting about the Dark Knight and this is what's even more interesting actually is that it, in 2008 we got Iron Man and uh, the Dark Knight which sort of set the stage for two different converging paths or um, di- diverging paths of superhero films one being the MCU formula and one being the Dark Knight which influenced a lot of the gritty realistic um, not just superhero films but like a lot of films have kind of tried to take inspiration not even close to as successfully as the Dark Knight has um, but it really set the stage for for a new style of filmmaking and I think that I think is actually interesting because it's 
in my opinion, for the worst, because I think a lot of films are now trying to still to this day trying emulate. to copy, yeah and emulate what the dark knight did and they're not doing it quite as successfully the most recent example being joker and i actually like joker um but i still don't think it's even close to as successful as what the dark knight does and um and i think it's it's a weird thing to think about a movie that's so special to you having had a negative impact on cinema moving forward mm-hmm. um i don't even know if negative is the right word but i think what i think people are missing the boat on and this is the conversation that we've been having this entire time is that <laughs> that yes it's dark and gritty but it's not dark and gritty and that's why it's good it's good because it's a character study first and foremost and it branches out from there and that's what i think a lot of the other films are missing the boat on um so i think that that's just i think that's sort of the legacy that this film holds more than any other else is it's it's sort of a shiny example of what other things are trying to reach to be Mm -hmm. okay well i mean you did mention the fact so i mentioned the fact that chris nolan changed the landscape of cinema by introducing imx cameras to filmmaking you know, you did mention the fact that this is, this is the first comic book movie to hit $1 billion. You know, it pushed Warner Brothers to make the DCEU more gritty as opposed to having like the same sort of uh, very, very happy tone that the MCU movies have. You know, I mean, you also can give Chris Nolan a budget of whatever he wants and he can make a, you know, he, he, he'll give you a return plus profit, you know, obviously being. But I think the biggest legacy of this movie is how it legitimized the comic book genre. And that yes. being of how it's regarded within the Academy. You know, it did have several Academy nominations. It did win for the best um, supporting actor for Heath Ledger posthumously. It did pave the way for movies like Logan, uh, Black Panther, Joker, Avengers Endgame to even be considered for the Academy Awards. So when we were talking about The Dark Knight, you did mention the fact that uh, Christian Bale should have been nominated. Um, Two questions. If Hollywood wasn't so pretentious, do you think that he has – even if he did get nominated, do you think he had a fighting chance at all with getting the votes? And if uh, Heath Ledger didn't die – you think they would have considered him at all for that award? So I think with the Heath Ledger thing, first off, I've heard that conversation quite a bit. Um, I, I personally don't even like to have that conversation just because he has passed, and I don't even think it's fair to put that sort of responsibility on him, his family, or the Academy. I, I just don't think it's fair. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that performance, in a lot of great performances, you know, like Josh Brolin in Milk, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in um, Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder, yeah. Uh, who else? Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road. Like, that's... That's a good category of supporting actors. Um, I think the last one was Philip Seymour Hoffman. And the uh, reader. Doubt, in Doubt. No, In Doubt. Oh, sorry. Michael Shannon and the reader. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman in Doubt. Yes. So no, no. That, Michael Shannon was Revolutionary Road. Okay. Then Philip Seymour Hoffman was for Doubt. Um, that was, but, okay. Yeah, it's for Doubt. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's that's a good category of supporting actors with Heath Ledger being the fifth. And um, I think Keith Ledger's performance would have stood as high as it does now, even if he hadn't passed away. I think it, it I think it's that good. I, okay. Like I said, it's my single favorite performance in any single film. And I think it is a top five performance. I don't, I don't think it's up for debate. I think it is a top five performance in film ever that, that fear that he instills in you, the sort of way that he balances the strange style of humor that the Joker has. You want to see a magic trick. I, you know, I bash this guy's head into a pencil. Like <laughs> it's so unsettling and no other actor could have pulled it off the way that he did. Okay. Um, well, I mean, any other comments in regards to the Academy and how this sort of yeah. this sort well, of movie I, legitimized the genre? 
not only did it legitimize the genre, it changed the Academy because it's what opened up the door for the 10 nominees thing that we're sort of standing in now because before The Dark oh, wow. Knight, there was five Great. nominees. That year, there were five Best Picture nominees. Um, Slumdog Millionaire won that year. Um, five other, Four other nominees. Uh, Milk was one of them, but uh, that, that's beside the point. The next year was the, the opening the door for the 10 nominees, and that was because of the backlash of the fact that The Dark Knight didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Um, okay. And I think that The Dark Knight is, is widely regarded as the film that made the Academy say we need more Best Picture nominees because we didn't recognize the dark knight that year um so so in my mind i gotta say that the dark knight technically was a best picture nominee even though it wasn't um but i i think also sort of more on the negative side i think that the dark knight is also sort of what sparked this um this conversation about fanboy culture um Mm. and i think that's pretty interesting because chris nolan fans me being one of them uh, chris (laughs) nolan fanboy i think they have a negative perception to a lot of people and and some of them are pretty crazy and intense but it sort of escalated with the dark knight because that was when like you sort of compound the the superhero fans the sort of toxic superhero comic book fans with that that christopher nolan fandom and i think that it's um i think that's part of the reason why christopher nolan is even considered to be a controversial filmmaker today which is again still baffling to me because he is the greatest filmmaker working today i don't understand how that's even up for conversation um but like i think it's part of that because of the sort of fandom that he latched onto himself with the introduction of the dark knight so so i guess it has like a bit of a mixed um legacy and and not because of the quality of the film again i think it's just because of sort of the conversation that it sparked and i guess the joker sort of obsession with anarchy and chaos is apt in considering all the circumstances with the conversation that still continues now 12 years after the dark knight's release um i, I think that's all very fitting okay let me ask you before we close off mm-hmm. i did say that this um particular uh, story with batman and within the comic book universe leans itself more to auteur filmmaking and you know obviously this is proven because chris nolan delivered one of the greatest trilogy ever greatest trilogies ever i'm talking too fast i'll slow down but um so if you had to give make a choice if or if, i'm just putting on the spot here which director would you choose to direct which comic book mo- which comic book storyline it could be a batman movie it could be a superman movie green lantern flash whichever director because i know darren aronofsky was considered actually to be the director for the this reboot mm-hmm. so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yes this is actually something i've given quite a bit of thought of to um and i think that you're probably gonna like my choice and you might agree with my choice um, okay this is this is something so so in 2000 what 15 16 when it was in production um it mm-hmm. uh, it was directed by andy muschietti starring um what's his name bill sarsgaard as as um bill Skarsgård as i think it's bill i don't know which brother it is uh, as pennywise yeah okay um it was originally supposed to be carrie fukunaga and will poulter um Uh i want a will poulter i when when that sort of fell apart and this was before the walking phoenix thing happened i was like on twitter and you can go back and find my tweets you can find me saying this i was going like carrie fukunaga and will poulter take that clown thing and do a joker movie um i still want that i i want that team up to do some sort of joker incarnation because i think that would be incredible carrie fukunaga handling the batman universe gotham or joker story would be game-changing in my opinion so we're both still in the same boat that the best way for an auteur filmmaker to make a good comic book comic book movie is with the batman universe um i did say previously that the reason that it was such a good movie is because they were playing off the blueprint of carrie carrie fukunaga so i'm glad you said that and you got glad you brought that i don't know if it'll be made because you know we already have jared leto we already have walking phoenix we already have heath ledger i don't know if he's gonna kind of saturate the landscape of comic book movies with another joker movie but um the one i want to see um actually uh be explored is with robin 
Um, I think, you know, we just bring him back into the fold considering the fact that uh, how much, how pan those other movies were in the past in the 90s. Um, and the storyline I wanted to see on screen is the Jason Todd one where he is the Red Hood and the Joker does kill um, that particular iteration of Robin because I feel like it leans itself more to the grittier aspects of Batman. You know, you can you see him like a as a as a mentor figure, as a teacher. He cares about this kid because of, you know, he's kind of he's a, he sees himself as the development of this child. And I feel like, you know, with the Robins, you have Nightwing, you have Jason Todd, as I said, you have a, I think his name is Tim Drake, the Red Robin, the third one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those iterations of Robin are interesting. And I, I feel like if you would attribute somebody to those, um, let's let me think, maybe Volnov. Or Finch, maybe Fincher, or maybe even Aronofsky. I feel like Aronofsky could make a good Jason Todd movie. Sure, but I feel like above all else, you'd probably want to see Fukunaga tackle that too, right? Yeah, I mean, that would be incredible. I would love yeah. that. I, I think Fukunaga has that sensibility, and we'll have a better idea of that after No Time to Die. We finally get to see it in November. Um, but mm. I just feel like he has the sort of mind, even though he's a very difficult director to work with because he's very <laughs> set on his vision, um, he has the mind to be able to tackle something superhero-related, franchise-related, and do it in a strong way. So um, is Nolan. I, yeah, no, Nolan, exactly. And I think that that's... Um, you, you, you make a great point in that the sort of auteur vision and, and what it's done for the genre and i think this is this is a good closing point because in in sort of keeping with this conversation about the legacy of this trilogy um we've talked about the films that strive to be the batman even the most recent joker movie was sort of striving and and even then like there's sort of a, a weight put on your shoulders if you're cast as the joker jared leto was cast as the joker and and even before we saw anything that thing was a fucking disaster and do you think able, do you think it's gonna come back as the joker i hope not and i don't even want to talk about it because i don't want to <laughs> hate that joker um, but like it, it sort of put this it sort of put this weight right on Jared Leto's shoulders and it sort of gave us this expectation just because I think of what Heath Ledger did for the Joker. We were not talking that way about Heath Ledger after Jack Nicholson's Joker because it's very different. And even with Mark Hamill's Joker, like what Heath Ledger did and what Christopher Nolan did really set the stage for superhero movies, comic book adaptations and just this whole scope of cinema. And I think that that is just, I think it's an astounding achievement. I understand that this trilogy has flaws, even the best of this trilogy, the best movie in this trilogy has flaws, but to not be able to recognize what an achievement it is to revolutionize cinema in the way that these movies have i think is is a slight on any film goers part if you cannot acknowledge and recognize that um what are your sort of closing thoughts on this all well i'm just going to go back to what i said at the beginning of how lucky we are that an author filmmaker like chris nolan went out of his way to create this trilogy like i don't think we put enough flack or like you just put him into enough like if we have kubrick or maybe miyazaki or fucking Ingmar Bergman or somebody from the past to make a comic book movie and make it as well as these were and have it be as well regarded as they are. Um, well, one thing being, I think maybe as the perception of The Dark Knight Rises, I went on to IMDb just for my research purposes, just to see the reception, the box office, the people reviews or whatever, the trivia that it's on the page. I saw that it was, I think, around 74 or 78 Metacritic score, which is pretty good. If you know Metacritic scores, it's, like it's somebody, turned after the fact, like after a couple of years, people started so to it, sour. Is it, a, is it a counter reaction to how people perceive Chris Nolan? Because you did mention the fact that he has a toxic fan base. So yeah. people are just saying that, no, 
fuck you. He's not as good as you think he is. Yeah. And here are the reasons why. You think maybe that's why this narrative of The Dark Knight Rises not being a good movie is because of uh, the toxic fandom? Yeah, I think it definitely contributes to it. Okay, well, I mean, they're wrong, obviously. They're just yeah, overreacting. Yeah. But, um, you know, <laughs> fuck I don't you. Have I just... <laughs> I think I've said everything I needed to say with this <laughs> trilogy. Uh, um, you know, I'm glad. I was always curious because I never know. I never knew your thoughts on. I knew your thoughts on Dark Knight. I never knew your thoughts on Begins or Leg or um, Rises. So I'm glad that we agree on. I am too. All three, all all three movies actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really glad we agree on all three movies because I, I yeah I agree with you. This is definitely one of the best trilogies of, of all time, and I don't think that I I don't understand how you can try to dispute that. And if you want to try to dispute that against me, come at me. I'll fight you any day, anytime. Um, but that'll bring us to a close for this special edition of Talking Movies. Thank you again for joining us. Um, uh, similar to what we've been doing in the previous weeks, we have put resources to Black Lives Matter um, websites and other other relevant resources that you can check out in our episode description. Description. So please be sure to check those out, and also please be sure to rate, review, Hold and on. subscribe to the. Pro- do, yeah, with the- do you want to give the audience members r- recommendations for anything? Oh, sure. Yeah, actually, I do <laughs> want to recommend something that I talked about earlier on in this podcast, and that's what we do in the shadows, not the TV show, the movie, because. That movie is just brilliant. Taika Waititi is incredible, and I just think that everybody needs to watch that thing. I feel like a lot of people like The Office, so if you like The Office, you're going to love what we do in the shadows because of the mockumentary feel to it. Yeah. Um, I want to recommend Hannibal on Netflix. If we get enough viewers, if we get enough ratings, we can get a fourth season because I fucking love that show. (laughs) (laughs) Hannibal is incredible, so I, I... I second that recommendation, but uh, yeah, like I was saying, uh, we have resources to Black Lives Matter uh, website and all that that you can find in our episode description, and as always, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and family. We can be found on Apple, Spotify, all the popular platforms. Uh, thank you again for listening, and we will be back soon.